welcome to the Do One Better podcast. I am Alberto Ligi, your host from London. And as a regular listeners know, the purpose of the show is to inspire you to be more philanthropic, to act more sustainably, and to embrace social entrepreneurship. Please subscribe to the show and please share widely. It really makes a huge difference and your support is always very much appreciated. Today, it's an absolute pleasure to welcome on board Dan Brelovitz, who is the founder and chief executive of Spring Impact. And today we're going to be talking about scaling up impact and their origins come from social franchising on a global scale. So we're going to talk a little bit about that side of things. And Dan, it is an absolute pleasure to welcome you onto the Do One Better show today. Alberto, it is great to be here. Thanks for having me. Not at all. It's an absolute pleasure. So why don't you um, tell us a little bit about Spring Impact? So yeah, I mean, as I talk about Spring Impact, I think probably the most useful place to start is um, is my own background and, and how I founded the organization. So 15 years ago, I founded my first nonprofit, raised money to provide education and foster small businesses in Ghana and India, and it's actually still going strong today. We supported some wonderful social entrepreneurs, but really I got frustrated, and I got frustrated that they were frequently repeating mistakes that mm-hmm. others had made rather than building upon what worked. And I found that they didn't lack... Um, committed people. The problem was that they kept reinventing the wheel. Right. And I thought that if we could only get the best proven ideas to scale up, to increase reach, and in the process draw in and coach great people to run their operations, the organizations could be so much more effective. So for those listening who run a not-for-profit, they know that it's more than a full-time job. And and at that point, um, which is about 10 years ago now, I I needed time to think. So I got onto this wonderful fellowship, the Cool Leadership Program, that gave me 18 months uh, of time for self-directed research. And I really wanted to get under the skin of organizations that had achieved scale and critically had managed to achieve a consistent level of quality while doing so. So I actually spent six months at McDonald's, the chain of restaurants. Mm -hmm. I know it well. I know it well. (laughs) (laughs) And um, I learned how they could achieve consistent quality at massive scale. And I've got to say it was eye-opening. I I saw what having passionate, highly trained people and perfect processes can do for scale. And I've sort of felt that if people that passionate about selling burgers and fries, if people could be that passionate about selling burgers and fries, the possibilities for our, the work that we do is, is endless. So yeah. then for the second half of the fellowship, I took the lessons from McDonald's to Oxfam. And I began to apply principles of replication, franchising, social franchising to the social sector. Mm-hmm. And there was a bunch of organizations, you know, we can talk about that began to scale in ways that they previously previously had thought wasn't possible. So I started getting asked to help bring these ideas uh, to other organizations to develop their scale strategy, implementation plans, and really that was that was the um, that was why I then found Spring Impact to help proven social innovation scale up. Right. And um, you asked about Spring itself. So uh, we are a charity, a not for profit. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know. We, we really work through advising others, though, on um, scale strategy implementation. In the past eight years, we've worked with around 200 organizations from big to small and, uh, you know, corporate to not-for-profit. There's a team of 20 of us based in London and San Francisco, and I actually relocated two years ago with my family to San Francisco from London to keep on building the organization here. So that is us. Wonderful, wonderful. And tell me, you um, so you spent a little bit of time at McDonald's, you spent a bit of time at Oxfam, 
your your background prior to getting into Spring Impact? Uh, were you in management consulting, or how, how, what triggered this um, this drive for scalability, uh, efficiency, replication? It's not something that is for everybody. No, that's right. I mean, I've thought about that. Um, I studied uh, operations management, mm-hmm. um, and uh, so I was always interested in process. And actually, I did think I would become a management consultant. But at the same time, as a teenager, I was very involved in a youth movement and yeah. um, ended up uh, running the youth movement. We had a thousand kids in camps all over Europe. And um, when I sort of got into the world of work for the first time and, and, and started doing stuff with the business, it just wasn't doing it for me. You know, I'd loved the youth work so much. I'd loved uh, uh, working with children and, you know, running an organization with a mission that um, I sort of, I guess, uh, looking back, it's easy to say, you know, I combined the sort of management, operations management piece with the mm-hmm. not-for-profit charitable piece. And, and this is where we are today. But right. really, I think that story about being given the opportunity by the Claw Leadership Program for 18 months of thinking to really dive into a number of areas, you know, spend time with McDonald's, that was the genesis of so much of what had come before. Mm-hmm. And um, I just really started to see how much of a difference you can make if you think, you know, strategically about scale. And so Spring Impact, it's a registered charity here in the UK and, and also in the States or just here? Or what's the structure of the organization itself? Yeah, we're a, a charity in the UK. They call it um, a 501c3 in the US. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, so, as I say, well, um, we the, the way we achieve our mission is largely through working one-on-one with organizations on their plans and strategies. You know, we don't make any profit. All of the surplus goes into building free resources um, and um, really raising the tide of all ships when it comes to helping them scale. So one just very practical example of that is that we publish the social replication toolkit, which Mm -hmm. is essentially all of our processes for free for any not-for-profit that that wants to take them and uh, is thinking about replication themselves. So it's highly unlikely you would do that in the commercial context um, because it's, it's really giving away all of our IP. But we've just felt that um, from a, from a charitable mission point of view, you know, it's our job to put ourselves out of business, essentially. And so we want to um, make sure everyone has the skills to uh, to scale up and replicate their program that is that is creating change. No, that's wonderful. It's almost as if your IP and your 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 intellect is a, a public good. Exactly. Exactly. One thing I keep on hearing quite a lot about is this tension between high quality and scalability. So people say, yes, we can. We can certainly do an intervention that's high quality, but we can do it at a very small scale. Uh, the minute we try to take this uh, regionally or or nationally or, or even re, uh, you know broader than that, um, quality takes a hit. Uh, tell us a little bit about the dynamics that your clients face day in and day out, whether this tension itself uh, manifests itself quite often, and just what are the dynamics that people come up to you with uh, what are the things that they're gra- grappling with, these CEOs? No, that's a that's a great question. And I think that tension is absolutely right, sort of quality versus reach. And maybe I can use a, a, an example, which is one that I've just recently been thinking quite a lot about. Um, 
there's an organization in in the U.S. based in San Francisco called Lavame, uh, which means wash me in Spanish. Mm-hmm. And um, their model is pretty simple. They retrofit uh, city buses uh, to deal with the symptoms of ho- homelessness. So giving homeless people showers, um, giving them food. And um, I know your your listeners will be all over the world, but mm. San Francisco has a serious homelessness problem. You know, you, you see it everywhere. And so dealing with some of the symptoms is really important, even though, of course, ultimately we want to deal with root causes. So we started working with them a few years back, four or five years back. And um, it's pretty simple. You know, you, you retrofit a city bus, you put showers in, you take it out and you take it into um, the homelessness population and you help where you can. And the first strategy we worked on with them was taking this program from San Francisco to Los Angeles. You know, L.A. is another area with a huge homelessness issue. And we were successful. It worked really well. They have an office there now with many buses serving thousands of members of the homeless population. But it just felt slow. It Mm -hmm. felt like we had good control and, um, you know, it was it was a it was a replication of branching of the same office but at the same time there were just requests coming in from all over the world from people saying we love what lavame is doing and we want to take it and replicate it um you don't have to be involved just give us the ideas and we'll run with them mm-hmm. so we made this uh, uh well, lavame made this decision um to uh which is one that you know we work with again and on again with, with clients which is Let's relinquish some control for the benefit of reach. So Lavame created a toolkit uh, on how to how to essentially copy their processes, very similar to we've done. And um, it's quite extraordinary. You know, people started taking this toolkit and setting up Lavame copies all over the world. And last time I checked, uh, which was a few weeks ago, over 170 organizations are now doing what Lavame does. Um, you know, just over a two, three year period. Mm-hmm. And so you can see there that while Lavame no longer has the direct control over what's happening with those copycat solutions, um, and, you know, maybe we don't know, but maybe quality is suffering slightly. With a simple intervention like that, with something around showering and, and helping the homeless, you know, the risk is low of the quality really being impacted uh, too much. And so actually giving it away, giving your IP away in this particular case is just a wonderful way to expand your impact and reach really rapidly. Sure. sure. Now, it is more difficult in complex models, particularly where, you know, life and death is involved. We, we do a lot of work within the national health system within the UK. And, um, you know, it's not always as easy to give away um, processes that might, you know, endanger people's lives. And that's where, you know, we talked a bit about social franchising. That's where the sort of McDonald's principle comes in, which is um, how can you give away something but maybe grant a license um, so that when it's installed in a new hospital, say a new system for dealing with people with respiratory problems, mm. when it's installed in a new hospital, it's done in a way that is has quality and will adhere to, um, you know, all the elements and the systems of the program that need to happen to, to really save lives. So I think um, in each particular model, it is slightly different. And um, I think that's what our toolkit aims to do. That's what we aim with all the organizations we work with is thinking what is right for your organization? How can you 
maximize the impact while still making sure there's enough quality that it is uh, that the impact is being achieved. So do you have a, a toolkit that's sort of off the shelf and then also the ability to sit down with individuals one on one and engage on the bespoke conversation? Yeah, I think uh, you've got it right. It's, uh, um, you know, the toolkit, as I said, we aim as much as possible to give people the tools to think this through. But the reality is, because it's a bespoke conversation, we even advise in the toolkit, you should have someone who's experienced, knowledgeable, you know, asking questions and helping guide you, you know, asking the difficult, you know, why are you doing that and not this sort of questions very much in the way actually you just asked me around scale versus reach you know mm -hmm. really pushing and making sure your organization is answering so you know the reality is there's no um i don't think there's a replacement for experience but you can certainly get a long a long way with sort of process and and that's what we're aiming to do with the toolkit mm -hmm. i've come across more than one organization where they're thinking yeah we absolutely need to expand globally or internationally and um, and you have possibly some trustees, some board members who really want to do that, but very different views on how to do that. And uh, I'm just curious on, on your take on that, because I think some of the key things that individuals grapple with are, again, making sure that the quality assurance is out there so that if your product, if your if your intervention is going to be replicated someplace else, making sure that they deliver it well. The other piece also about your brand and how do you protect that brand, because as far as the general population is concerned, they may not know that that's a franchisee or what have you. All they know is that it's the same brand as the one that's on your front door. And then the other question that comes up a lot, and I guess particularly on the nonprofit space, is do we monetize this? Do we do we seek to have some sort of revenue stream for for HQ? And what are your thoughts on these things? Yeah, no, these are all these are all really important questions. I mean, I think on the the question on on the board and leadership and and being ready for scale uh, is one that we come across often. And I think it it can often be a uh, you know it's either a very ambitious CEO mm. or it's a very ambitious ambitious chair or board, and and maybe the other party um, is not as excited. Mm -hmm. And we've really found the, the solution to that being to really systematically thinking through what a scale strategy is so that everyone can get comfortable. I think, um, you know, when you start thinking about growing and scale, for some people that's, you know, gets them hot up under the collar and excited, whereas for others, they, they just get really nervous about the risk. And sure. there is some additional risk. And so coming up with a solid plan is, uh, which everyone can agree on, is, is really important. Mm-hmm. How do you um, how do you get your clients? What are you, what what are what does your average client look like? What are the main things that they're trying to achieve? Uh, how do they hear of you? What's the the sort of poster child of, of a typical client for Spring Impact? Where we started was very much helping individual organizations um, scale up. Mm -hmm. and so the typical sort of client was. Um, um, an individual not-for-profit that had a great idea and was seeking to scale. And we still work with those. We love working with them. I don't know if you know the Skull, Skull uh, mm -hmm. Well Forum and the Skull Foundation. So we sure. work with probably about 10 Skull awardees. So, so just really um, organizations, I think our, our, our sort of the uniqueness of Spring Impact is that 
we believe in scale, but we like to work with later stage organizations to take them a step further. Mm. So we work with a, a skull awardee, um, such as a, a Toastan or a, a, a Village Reach, uh, who are already at significant scale, you know, four or five African countries, and we'll say, okay, how do we take this pan, Pan-Africa? And there aren't actually many, if, if any, really other organizations who, who specifically focus on, on that. Mm. Um, so those are the sort of organizations. I think more recently, um, and we, we're going through sort of thinking about how we scale our own impact and becoming more engaged in how you can work with a whole field of organizations, say within global health or within early childhood development, and then raise the tide of all ships within that field. So um, an example is... Uh, uh, you know, within early childhood development, we've now done around 20 projects. Early childhood development, for those who don't know, is really supporting um, prenatal to three, you know, three years old, five years old children to, to develop and, and achieve their potential. And um, there's a bunch of great evidence behind how to do it, but practice has not caught up. And just for me personally, it's been a real passion of mine uh, and, and interest area. So the, the question is, how can, how can we, cre- we create toolkits, processes to help all early childhood organizations? You know, could we even be involved in advocacy and, and, and advocate for those organizations to do more? So we've got more involved in that recently. Um, mm-hmm. And uh, so I think that the, in terms of the clients, it's, it's everyone through the individual organizations, but also really interested in groups of organizations and, and, and the difference we can make there. Mm-hmm. So you're on a journey as well. You're on a journey from um, engaging with some of these individual groups or organizations that are not particularly aligned with any specific theme to now engaging more on the early childhood development space and trying to engage more with, with organizations active in that area. Is that, is that fair to say? Yeah, early childhood is one uh, issue area, you know, also global health, and mm-hmm. we're looking at a number of others at the moment. But yes, absolutely on a journey. And um, I know we haven't touched upon it yet, but uh, COVID-19 is you know, dramatically reshaping the world in so mm-hmm. many different ways. And we're really starting to think through what it means uh, for us in terms of how we can have the biggest uh, impact in the world too. So I think there's just a lot of uncertainty at the moment, but the things I talked about were certainly where we were going, you know, a month ago, and uh, we have some ideas about the future, but the world is a different place. Mm-hmm. What does a typical engagement look like from somebody getting in touch with you initially to to then progressing with, uh, with an actual assignment? Yeah, so I mean, normally with a client, um, the, the absolute, in fact, you asked about our business the business model and how it works. You know, mm-hmm. the, our, our first and foremost, our client is always the, the not-for-profit who is scaling up. And it's normally the CEO or if they're very large, maybe like the, the, the um, CEO or, or head of operations. Um, but then really it's about the detail of working with the, with the staff members who are, who are doing the work you know, day to day as well and how we can help them improve their own practice. Um, mm-hmm. But then the money in almost all cases comes from a foundation um, or a funder. So often we're working with funders who will recommend and say, Dan, you know, we love this organization. We think they have so much potential. Will you go in and speak to their CEO? Um, and then we'll come back and, you know, us and 
and the organization will make a funding uh, bid to to a particular funder. So that's normally how it would work. Got it, got it. Um, and uh, yeah, that, that works pretty well. It, in light of um, COVID uh, and the response, I think we're still feeling our way. So we're doing as much pro bono as we can. Mm-hmm. Um, and then there's a few funders out there who've got projects that they know are switching to an emergency response. So a wonderful organization called Family Connects in, in the US, uh, work, working in the early childhood development space, they do home visits. So, mm-hmm. um, you know, first three years of a, of a baby's life, they'll send a nurse in, you know, occasionally depending on how um, the, the need of the child. And uh, they've had to switch instantly to doing virtual home visits. Mm. So this is something that we can really help with, you know, help a team who are overwhelmed anyway think through how do you switch to virtual home visits? What are the risks? How do you measure? Um, So I think we're feeling our way, but we just want to do everything we can to help with the emergency response. Yeah. Sounds like you're doing something fun, though. Sounds like you, you probably enjoy... The puzzle of trying to help somebody out with their uh, with their strategic problems. Absolutely. I mean, if it wasn't for you know the the sort of dire situation we find ourselves, I think some of these challenges are really interesting. I think what makes it you know, more enjoyable normally and not in these emergency cases is that organisations are really struggling with the day to day of how do we pay our staff and and just thinking how do they balance you know, sort of survival with also wanting to scale and meet the needs. And, you know, that's, that's really stressful. And mm-hmm. so uh, while it's, uh, you know, we really want to help think through um, how this works, there is a big element of, you know, staying strong and, and helping leaders um, be able to be resilient through this. Mm-hmm. I don't know if you're on Twitter or, or LinkedIn, but what, what are the best ways for people listening to, to you right now to, uh, to reach out if they're so inclined? Yeah, just go to springimpact.org and you can sign up for the newsletter there and there's links to all the uh, Twitter and, and all the other feeds, springimpact.org. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And tell me, so we're, you know, I was hoping that we'd start 2020 on a, on a more positive note, but it's, uh, it's quite the opposite from that. But we're just pretty much about 10 years away from the Sustainable Development Goals. And um, if we were having a conversation in 10 years time and looking back and thinking, wow, that was really a great successful ride what would success look like to you for the next 10 years what 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 is it that you really love to see happen as we uh, approach 2030 no that's that's a a great question i think really important now you know as we're in the emergency to to sort of hold our heads up and and think that i think there's a few things i mean i think um firstly we just love these skills around how you can scale up your organization and uh, how you can balance things like the reach and the speed with quality. I'd love these skills to be sort of pervasive throughout the sector. Mm. So for you know thousands, hundreds of thousands of organizations to have the tools and the ability to be able to think through this. So as I said before, essentially putting ourselves out of the job, you know, yeah. would, would want organizations to be able to do this. And and I what why I think that is possible is because if you think about um, doing strategy work. Um, and the strategic process, you know, simple tools like that you may know, SWOT and PEST and stuff mm-hmm. like that. If you look sort of 20, 30 years ago, it was only the McKinsey's and the BCG's that could do that. And now those sort of strategic tools are in organizations all over the world. So we'd love to have a, 
have a, a movement towards people being able to think about scale in the same way. Sure. I'd love within 10 years also for funders to be able to, um, to see that they need to invest in ideas that work. And not that I don't love a new idea, I love innovation. So to continue that, but I think the pendulum needs to swing towards investing in what works and really helping um, scale happen. And then finally, we talked a bit about issue areas such as early childhood development. And um, we're still feeling our way in terms of the specific outcome we want. Mm. But with the ECD work, I would love for a world in which you know, children zero to five years old are really getting off to the best start no matter where they are in the world. And that means um, from our work, it would be things like financial systems working differently in favor of young children, parents having the skills to be able to talk and, and support their development. So yeah. um, there's a lot I would want in 10 years, I think it's fair to say. Good, good, good. Ambition is good. And, I, and for the listeners out there, I think the early childhood development piece uh, regular listeners would know this. It's one that's very close to my heart. and um, But also just for any philanthropist out there, any foundation who maybe is exploring or contemplating the notion of getting involved with the early years, I would say take a look at the, um, at the economic arguments for investing in early years and the neuroscientific arguments for investing in early years. They're both extremely robust. Uh, take a look at Jack Shonkoff at Harvard on the neuroscience and Jim Heckman uh, on the uh, from the University of Chicago on the economics and, and why it's good to invest in early years, and I think Dan, you're absolutely on the right track for wanting to uh, to back that space. I, uh, you're preaching to um, to the choir. I think the the other bit that I feel quite hardened by that aligns well with you is that uh, when I did my master's um, when I was doing business twenty years ago. Half the class wanted to go into investment banking. The other half wanted to go into management consulting. And that was pretty much that. Uh, now, and I occasionally I lecture to, to, to one of the MBAs and uh, classes, uh, it's really great that a lot of those MBA students come up to me and they're like, well, how do I get into the foundation space? How do I get into philanthropy or impact investing or ESG investing? And I think um, that should bode well for, for your wish for, for having a more um, commercially savvy uh, third sector. Completely. I mean, first of all, just on your early childhood comments, uh, you, uh, you and I are, are in lockstep about this. I mean, it's just an area we can we can make such a, a big difference. And then totally agree. I mean, I think we benefit from that in our staff. I mentioned there's there's 20 people on the staff, and um, you know, almost all of them, you know, come from uh, you know top top universities and have, and have made a decision to go down this route and to, and to, um, you know, to work for social change, which is sacrificing, you know, to some degree, their ability to make, um, you know, as much money as they would otherwise, but it's really, um, fulfilling their need to, to make change and to feel that they're doing something. And I'd say you're right, you know, probably 20 years ago, it would have been much more difficult to find people willing to, mm to jump like that so couldn't agree more what do you want to do in the early years space and i don't know if you're if you feel happy talking about it publicly or whether this is some sort of like strategic uh thinking that's inside your organization and exclusively inside your organization right now but what is it do you have a vision for what you want spring impact to be able to bring to the table on early childhood development that you'd like to articulate publicly or because I know you have some thinking in this space that's really interesting. 
Yeah, so we're still thinking it through. So I, I can't give you anything um, conclusive, but mm-hmm. at the moment we're thinking, you know, what would it be to have a centre for uh, global scale of early childhood programmes? So I'll give you an example of one piece of research we're doing, which is um, looking into uh, home schooling, schooling, schooling from home, mm-hmm. um, uh, as in for, for very young children. So most children are uh, are taught in in uh, child centres, and in fact, most funders tend to prefer funding centre-based care. But we know that you know seventy, eighty percent—it's hard to measure exactly—of young children are actually cared for in the home. You know, do those people, those neighbours, those mothers, those sisters who are caring—and and I, I should say, in almost all cases, it is women—but mm-hmm. um, do they have the right tools? and um, practices to be able to really develop their their child and can we take some of those practices globally so exactly what form the initiative will take uh, i'm not sure but i'd love simple ideas like that which i think are being overlooked uh, in the world of early childhood development at the moment to be taken and systemized and then um you know routes uh, to uh, to really scale those to many people all over the world uh, caring mm. for children it's just one example I don't know if you find this. I I certainly do. But I think you have a lot of organizations and individuals looking to get into or get involved with early childhood development. But they're sort of siloed a little bit, at least by geographic area. I find you have quite a few funders who are looking at it and they're based in the UK, others in the US, others in Paris. And but I think or others in South Africa, for that matter. And I think um, just the, the, the connectivity between these different really well-intentioned groups could be a little bit better. That's the impression I get. I mean, it's more anecdotal oh, I, than I anything else. Uh, I could not agree more, uh, Alberto. I think you know, you've know you got a smart start in South Africa who are doing uh, sort of social, social franchising version of, um, of home care. You've got Kadogo in Kenya. You've got All Our Kin um, based out of the East Coast of the U.S., and actually, what's interesting about all of these different models is that they are so similar. You know, even though the context in these countries is quite is is very different. Um, you know, looking after your kids in the home, kids are kids require the same de- development mental needs uh, all over the world. And so, I really think we should be thinking more globally. And um, you know, I would love uh, once this COVID uh, situation hopefully is. Mm-hmm. Um, at a point where we can travel again to start getting people sharing some of this knowledge and even doing visits around the world to say, you know, hey, here's what we're doing. For example, I think the, the sort of systemic work being done in South Africa is, is um, quite significantly um, further ahead than most other parts of the world. Mm-hmm. And I'd love to get them coming to the US to, to meet with someone like a Help Me Grow and say, you know, compare notes, what's working, what isn't. So I, I think what you just said is absolutely spot on. Now, there, there is some great stuff happening in South Africa. And, and I think also just for listeners out there, if you're interested in this space um, and you're already thinking about philanthropy or funding and maybe you're doing it in other thematic areas, by all means, take a look at, at early childhood and, and get in touch with Dan or, or me for that matter, because I think you have a lot of people uh, in our circles who are really keen to have conversations to... Um, to move this space forward. Dan, yeah. tell me, and I'll, yeah, just, go ahead. Uh, 
you know, I, I would love, I know we had a brief conversation, but, you know, I think the sort of work you've done um, historically and your passion for the space is so needed. So I do hope we can, uh, you know, find a way and, and keep talking to, to do some of this stuff. So we'll just reiterate what you said. If there's listeners who are passionate about this, we need everyone to come on board for this issue. Yeah, absolutely. And just look at the research. Look at Jack Shankoff. Look at Jim Heckman for the neuroscience and the economic arguments. If you're somebody who's uh, keen on impact, if you're keen on um, not just following intuition, but actually being dispassionate about how you make your decisions, your funding decisions, I think uh, looking at these individuals uh, would be uh, would serve you very well. Tell me, Dan, what what is uh, I always ask guests before we 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 uh, we conclude things for a key takeaway. It can't. It could be anything at all. It could be a management tip. A, personal observation what's that one thing you'd love for the listeners to keep in mind after they finish listening to today's episode so i think given that these are strange times with coronavirus uh i hope you forgive for for having forgive me for having two Mm, Um, go for two in the immediate response in 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 these times of coronavirus uh right now I've spoken to a number of leaders of organizations, people within organizations. I think, you know, we need to be thinking about the emergency response and we need to be thinking about risk, but also hold your head up to the possibilities to really expand and create more impact uh, in these in these challenging times. So uh, think about risk, but also hold your head up and look out for opportunities to scale and do more that the situation um, might bring. And then once this is over and we're in recovery mode and back as much as will ever happen to normal life, um, I think the key message is just really think um, systematically, strategically about scale. So I think the trap people fall into often is is saying, you know, we're going to reach a million children or whatever the figure might be, but they're not thinking through what are the steps that Mm -hmm. I need to take to get there. And um, if you really take the time to plan and think carefully through what the best strategy is, we can take solutions to help many, many more people. Very well said. Very well. Very well said indeed. Look, Dan, thank you so very much for joining us on the Do One Better podcast today. It has been a real pleasure speaking with you. I know we actually never met face to face just yet, so I'm looking forward to making your acquaintance in the not too distant future. And to our listeners, thank you very much for for tuning in. It's, uh, it's always heartening to hear your feedback, so please write in. Please subscribe and please share widely with others. It makes a huge difference. Dan, thanks once again. It's, uh, it's been really great having you on board and uh, hearing both about the social franchising and scalability, but also your passion for early childhood, which I, um, I share very much as well. Thanks, Alberto. It's been a pleasure. Thank you for listening to the Do One Better podcast. If you want to find out more about our show, about our guests, additional links and resources, visit our website at liji.org. That's L-I-D-J-I dot And don't forget, success at the Do One Better podcast is about inspiring you to be more philanthropic, to think more about sustainability, and to embrace social entrepreneurship. Hopefully, these stories will encourage you to take action and change the world around you for the better.